You're listening to Irish Radio Canada. We heard there from Garrod O'Halloran and George Kavanagh about the Carricks. And uh, you heard mention that George had gone over to Sligo and had connected up uh, with the people in Sligo and had been felt very much that he was coming home. And one of the people that uh, we heard very much involved in this is Joe McGowan. And Joe is involved with Sligo Heritage. Joe, thanks a million for taking the call and filling us in a little about your side of the Atlantic. And uh, welcome. Oh, well, you're, 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 you're nice to hear from you, and I'm delighted to be able to speak to somebody over on that side of the Atlantic. We don't do that very often. So, um, um, I suppose, to be... Yeah, sorry? So the story starts, I understand, if we go back where it was Lord Palmerston paid the passage. So, and that was as much, really, of the story we were getting from... We, we got well, the Canadian well, side. Surely, yeah. Well, that's, that's one, of the, one of the things that annoy me, is this... Uh, phrase assisted emigration because uh, I, I think Irish people are very slow to point a finger at uh, whether it be foreign landlords or, or anybody we're a bit too kind in that way assisted emigration was actually a constructive eviction at best and eviction itself at worst because um, in the case of the cabinets they couldn't pay the rent so they were evicted and uh, so were their neighbours, the, the Murrays, um, and some of the, the information that I have, I actually have in my possession an eviction notice, which uh, mentions the, the Murrays, if not Rower. So the, the, um, the Caveneys uh, were sent out along with the 180 other people. It was, uh, it was a wave of evictions at that time, and actually Lord Palmerston and um, uh, Robert Gore Booth over in Maharao in Abern Village they were two of the worst landlords in Ireland for evicting people. In fact, in um, 1847 itself, 2,000 tenant farmers were shipped out from Lord Palmerston's Sligo Estates alone. Um, Patrick Caveney and Sarah MacDonald and their six children, five daughters, uh, were aged between two and ten, and a 12-year-old boy, they left Cross near Cache, uh, which is about uh, an hour away from here in South Sligo on the morning in April 1847. Now, the walk, uh, there, were, there, was, there was no... Well, obviously, they would have sold their transport, whether it be horse cart or ass cart, so they had to walk the 20 miles of Sligo Port. And it, it, it is to his descendant, George, that we owe much of, of our information, and we pick it up in various places. When the Carrick sailed from Sligo Port, she had uh, on board 173 of Emerson's tenants. That was the 173 out of the 2,000 I mentioned previously. Um, plus the crew members was a total of 187. On the night of um, it was May 19th, the Carricks ran into a snowstorm in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and she was wrecked on a reef at a place called Cap de Rosier in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. 173 passengers embarked to Sligo. Nine had already died on the voyage, and a further 119 died because of the wreck. 48 survivors, I think it was 48 survivors. And of the crew, all survived except for one boy. Now, at this point, I might say that I'm chairman of the County Sligo Famine Commemoration Committee. And in 1997, on the 150th anniversary of the famine, we got together here in Sligo, a few people just ordinary people that you'd meet on the street and we erected the family memorials in Sligo. We had um, a, a, a great affinity with the people who left. Now, it was like there was a curtain drawn on the Atlantic itself. We had some accounts of what happened on the other side 
But even though we knew that, say, the carracks of Whitehaven went out, we, we knew little about the people on the other side, except that when they landed on the other side, they were often naked and were taken into care by uh, the, the people of Quebec. And at this point, I might say as well, that we owe a great debt of gratitude to the Canadian people. Let's remember that those people didn't have English when they left. They were Gaelic-speaking. And when they arrived in, in Capturosia, in this instance, and in unfortunate circumstances, they didn't have French. But yes, uh, from what we read and hear, the French people took them into their arms, they hired them, they brought them into their homes, and... Um, repatriated them in, in many different ways. So that's uh, on our side here we must never forget that oftentimes in New York and uh, Boston and places like that we all have heard about uh, no Irish need apply in much later times even. So you mean, that uh, re really brings it home to us how much we owe to the people of Quebec. Now among those saved was a Patrick Caveney and his wife Sarah MacDonald and one of their sons, named Martin, who's age 12, five of the daughters were drowned in the wreck. So we can imagine uh, the desperate situation they were in. Right. One of the curious things that happened there, I don't know if George or Garrod mentioned it already, was about um, the, the priest there, um, I think it was in Douglastown he was, um, Father Michael Dowling. Did they mention? No, they didn't mention Father Dowling. Well, it's a very interesting story. Um, he was a native of County Westmead and a missionary priest on Gaspé. On the night of the tragedy, he was in Grand Grieve, actually, about 10 miles from Cap de Rosier. And he was startled from his sleep because of a disturbing premonition he had of disaster. He got up out of his bed, put his clothes on, went to the neighbours, and he said, I have to go to Cap de Rosier. I'm needed there. He was so insistent and forceful about this that they did immediately take him to the shore. On arriving there, of course, what is a horrible sight, a ship wrecked uh, close to the shore, survivors dead and dying, bodies being washed onto the shore. And he immediately set about administering to the survivors and, of course, praying for the drowned. Um, a friend of mine that I've lost contact with um, in that area, he told me that I had much email communication with him. And Father Dowland found one of the victims, his feet lacerated and bleeding from cuts on the rocks. You can imagine that mm -hmm. there would be many in that condition and hardly able to walk even. Uh, Father Dowling, he took the shoes off his own feet and put them on the poor man and walking barefooted himself, led him up the shore to a place of ref refuge. Interestingly, following this incident, it was so traumatizing for the priest that he never again said Mass. His hair turned white overnight or in a couple of days, completely white, and he never again said Mass. Okay. Now, um, Patrick Caveney eventually succeeded in taking over a farm that was abandoned by Jersey fishermen. Apparently the Jersey fishermen, there was an industry of Jersey, the island of Jersey people fishing over there. They managed to get a house. His wife, Sarah, over the following years, gave birth to four other children. That would be between 1848 and 1855. Tragedy struck again. While she was pregnant with her fourth child, on March 16, 1855, Patrick left Jersey Cove, where they were, to celebrate St. Patrick's Day with an Irish community in Douglastown. Now, that was the best part of a day's walk away. 
unfortunately, he got lost um, in the snow. People from Sligo wouldn't be used to whiteouts and the dense snow that they would have there. The journey took him over the tip of the Appalachians and across the frozen Bay of Gaspé. Four days later, his body was found on the ice. It seems he had lost his way and become disoriented. Losing track of where the opposite shore was, he circled and on the ice and circled until it cracked beneath him. They found his body uh, shortly afterwards. So Sarah, his wife, was now left to raise the remaining children without him. Now, she herself lived to a, a ripe old age for that time, aged 85, and her grave is over there. We're again, we're very grateful uh, from the information we have on this side and from George and Garrod that the parish of St. Patrick's in Montreal erected uh, at around, I think it was 1900 or 1901, a monument on Captain Rosier. Again, from the communication I've had with a, an individual up there, his name escapes me now. It's been a few years since I had communication from him. He wasn't poor health, so man, they may not be with us any longer. But I'm told that an Irish flag flies there at Cap de Rosier 365 days a year that is considered to be Irish soil and that the, it is the only foreign flag that's allowed to fly in Canada 365 days a year. So that, that's a very interesting one. I don't know how true it is. I have no reason to disbelieve it. But again, that is a fantastic tribute from a French-speaking Quebec uh, to the people of Ireland. So that, um, that's, uh, that's essentially the story. Um, George uh, kept um, faith uh, and his forebears from Patrick uh, all the way down. To, they changed their name from Caveney to Kavanagh. Um, there would have been Oak Waveney in Irish when they left. And I'm not sure in which generation they changed to Kavanagh, which was, would, would have been easier to The The Paris Canada archaeologist, Martin Perron, um, was at Cap de Rosier uh, monitoring the movement of the Carrick's monument as, as uh, it had been damaged by uh, erosion. We're well familiar with that here in the west coast of Ireland, as it happens all the time. And while they were digging an explanatory trench, Mr. Perron discovered human bones. In the weeks that followed, archaeologists identified the skeletons of four adults and three children. What followed from there, I think there was a train... Uh, the, the bones weren't analysed for some time. I believe there was a massive train wreck, and that took up the time of the scientists. They didn't get to it until recently. The bones were analysed, and it was confirmed that they did come from the chemical analysis. It was discovered that they did come from from Ireland. Um, obviously, they could do that through diet and one thing and another. We on this side, and many people, would have liked to do DNA analysis on the bones, but it was impossible because of the poor condition. Okay. Uh, the archaeologists were also only able to collect about 1% of some of the skeletons. And Rebo, who was one of the people who did the investigation, he said that they probably melted because of the context of preservation. So, unfortunately, we won't be able to connect to the Caveneys or, or to the the Murrays or the various other people who went out there. George Kavanagh, of course, is a descendant, and he held to the belief that was carried down through generations that there were graves there, that there were people buried there. Now, Parks Canada um, doubted this. They didn't fully believe him, and they said, even told him there was some research, but nothing was found. But with the discovery of the grave and the bones in recent times, 
George, George's, the, the story that was carried down in the Kavanaugh family was confirmed. So I believe it was yesterday that uh, the bones were reinterred. And uh, that's fantastic that that has happened. We were delighted to receive George and his extended family here in Sligo and the members, our members of the uh, Famine Committee. Very pleased to see George, a delightful fella himself, his wife and the extended family. And on account of the um, um, documentary that's just been made by Garrod and others, uh, and myself and another member of the family committee went over there a few weeks ago to the first screening in Concordia University in Montreal uh, to see how it had come out because we spent several days here going around to various sites and talking to various people and so on and so forth, going up to, to, to Kish, uh, where the cabinets came from originally. Now, it was very moving for us and for George and family to actually, after all those generations, to go to where the, 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 there's a small number of stones, like a low ditch or a low stone fence. That is all that is left of the cottage that they left from. Now, it's a tradition in Ireland to, when you leave a place, that you would take the coals from the fire. Of course, the fire in Ireland was the fire that never went out because it was raked at night and kindled again in the morning. It, it was never quenched. <clears throat> so before they left, <clears throat> for the final time, they took coals and brought those coals to a neighbouring house so that the fire would stay alive, with the idea, if we ever return, uh, let it be sooner or later, we'd take those coals and that would be a living fire that we'd bring back to our own heart again. Mm-hmm. Of course, they never came back. Not That generation never came back. And other generations went by. But George did go to a neighbouring house and reenacted the ceremony of taking the coals and, and, and we lit a fire on a low ditch. We have photographs of it and it's shown in the movie. The movie is uh, the documentary, the film documentary is called Lost Children of the Carricks. So it was a great pleasure for us to, um, to do that and uh, welcome George back and of course we were welcomed in turn by Garrod and George and the family that we met there so it's, it's a heartwarming story um, they've, they've been treated with uh, dignity now by uh, dignity and uh, respect a, a dignity and respect that they never had in the landlord dominated Ireland under British occupation that there was at that time so again um, thank God that my generation has lived into better times when we're masters more or less of our own destiny and well I could say a lot more but I think maybe that uh, pretty much covers it Right, well Joe then there has been a great awareness in Canada and in Ireland of certain aspects of the emigration story and certain locations have dominated for example um, Grosseil and Montreal Toronto and the gas bay was not really on the horizon that much or very not known that well. Likewise, no, it wouldn't be. Likewise, in Ireland, you know, there was the knowledge that people sailed from Cove or they, that they sailed from a few other ports, but there isn't really a great awareness either the number of ships that sailed from other ports in Ireland, including Sligo. Oh, there were, there were thousands, tens of thousands. Uh, some research has been done on it. The, um but there's a great amnesia 
in Ireland about the famine. And while we were doing our work, we brought out a booklet. And if you let me have your address, I'll, I'll send a copy of the booklet to you. It's been reprinted now by Sligo County Council. When I read, um, let me think, excuse if I can think of the name of the book, The Great Hunger by Cecil Woodham Smith. When I read that book, and, and I lock out every day on Classybourne Castle that was commenced by Lord Palmerston, the famine landlord. And we knew nothing of the famine. We knew the castle. It's a lovely castle. People come to Mullochmore to, to, to take pictures of it and the sea castles. And it's, it's, very, um, it's a very pretty sight up against Ben Baldwin. Very few people know the horrible history. I grew up here working on a small farm, and I never knew the horrible history until I read that book by um, uh, Cecil Woodham Smith. Mm-hmm. In that book, I read of the Aeolus, the Carracks of Whitehaven, and various other ships. Now, that would be in the 19... So that book was written in the 1960s. A lot of the old people whose parents would have lived through the famine were alive at that time. So I, got all, I was all excited. Jesus, that, that's Lord Palmerston, and he's the fellow who built the castle up there. And these are the names of the ships. So I went to the old people, whose memories went back to the 1860s and further back. And I said, have you ever heard of the Aeolus and, and the Carracks of Whitehaven? And I mentioned some others as well. No, they, didn't, they knew nothing about them. Yet there was an old man, a neighbor of mine, who told me a story about a ship named the Idwall that was wrecked in 1860, which is quite close to famine times, from Mullochmore Harbour. He even remembered uh, the old fisherman went down the night before the storm came, they warned the uh, Welsh captain, you better move your ship because there's a bad storm coming and you're in a bad place. Came down through the generations and his reply to the old Mullochmore fisherman, dressed in rags, I suppose, and poorly clad, that he took as much of another man's advice as did him good. <laughs> it was, and I've memorialised it now and it's in some of my books, so it will never be forgotten. Yes, they could tell me nothing about the, the famine ships and the famine that beset Ireland and Sligo. Why? This is why I called it the Great Amnesia, because I emigrated to America in 1961. And when I went out there, people could talk about the poverty they left, because they had come into better times. And when you come into better times, you can talk about the bad times. That would be the situation now in Ireland as well. Even myself, I can talk about the, the bad times maybe in the 40s and 50s when I grew up. But the people of that generation never came into better times. What did they have to do to survive? Did the McGowans, who survived my family, did they have a store of potatoes in their room? Let's look at a, a conjecture. Did they have a store of potatoes in the room that would keep their family alive through the winter till maybe a few months' time when they might get some potatoes? Did a neighbouring family come to the door, maybe on their hands and knees, they were too weak to actually walk, and beg for a few potatoes or something to keep them alive for another day? What were the McGowans or countless other people going to do? Were they going to give them the small store they had uh, so they could live another day or two? Or were they going to keep it so that they would live? It's a horrible scenario. Mm-hmm. There are records, including in Mullochmore, of a man called Pat Healy, who had a pit of potatoes. Of course, we call them pits that were mm-hmm. covered in clay and so on then when the crop was dug. He had a pit of potatoes, so he's quite happy that his family were going to survive because he was keeping it till the springtime, using them very sparingly. He went out in the springtime, and there was nothing in the pit. 
the potatoes had been stolen. Right. So what did people have to do? To steal to survive? Yeah. To refuse their neighbours? It, it was much. It wasn't. There was nothing good to remember about the famine times and all the deaths. When a family died, sometimes it might have been a mud hut the, that would be pulled in over them. That was the burial. So the next generation came, and so on down to our own times. And in uh, 1997, on the 150th anniversary, uh, this is when the interest was peaked again. Now I remember I was a small boy in 1947. That would be the 100th anniversary of the famine. I was old enough to know or hear the older people talking. There was no mention of famine. Perhaps we were still living in near famine conditions at that time because uh, it, it was still a young country having gained independence not that long before. So, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but these are the thoughts that uh, went through my mind of why we knew so little about the famine. Now, there are people like myself and Garrod and yourself and various other people who are interested, and it's getting much headlines at the present time. But it was not something to be remembered or to be proud of that particular time, and this is why we know so little about it. But if we live to a time now, I think this Maslow's Pyramid of Needs starts off, I think, with, with, with food and then shelter and a few other things. The top of the Pyramid of Needs is remembrance. Mm -hmm. And we're fortunate to live in a time when we can do that. And thanks be to God, we did erect the memorials in Sligo in honour of the, of the people who died and the people who left our shores. And uh, we're in a position today where Garrod, or, uh, Garrod could travel and various people could travel up to Cap de Rosier to remember that family on the day in 1847 who left Sligo and finished up in such dire circumstances. But the Irish are survivors and the Cavanaghs are a prosperous family now and a lovely family and they, they're, they're um, doing very well in that area. And keeping the memory of Ireland and the affection for Ireland as we indeed keep uh, an affection for people that we find like the Cavanaghs on the other side. So there is still a great bond of affection between the people on this side and the people on the other side, all connected by that horrible catastrophe that happened in Ireland in 1847. Well, Joe, would be remiss of me if I didn't then ask if anyone is travelling from Canada over to Ireland and makes it to Sligo, um, where they should wander around Sligo? Where is the uh, commemorative uh, memorial? Well, our committee started in 1997 with nothing. Uh, just a few people and usually put our hands in our pockets and threw a few coppers on the table to buy stamps and to discuss what we might do. We finished up doing, um, we started with the famine graveyard. There's a famine graveyard attached to the, what was known as, as the county home and it's now St. John's. Um, one, of, one of my friends said that he thought there was a famine graveyard there. It would not be well known. But through discussion and sitting around the table and asking questions, we discovered, yes, it was a famine graveyard. The very first thing we did was have a candlelight vigil, and we had a piper, a great man, Larry O'Dowd, who was always with us on protests and demonstrations and so on. So the very first thing we did was stand outside the, the, the walls of the famine graveyard, and we did, a, we did a candlelight walk around and a short talk. What struck me at that time, and what still strikes me, is that not no more than if it was several thousand dogs were buried in that graveyard, did we know the name of one single person. And we still don't know the name of anybody that was buried in there. But what we did do 
we cleared up the graveyard and uh, handed it over eventually to the health board and it's very well preserved there now and people can that's one of the places that people can go to this well preserved uh, famine graveyard adjacent to um, St John's Hospital in Sligo um, we kept raising money and one of the things we did uh, there, there's, a fan, there's a fantastic entrance gates we broke down a wall and established an entrance um, and uh, the, gates, the gates are made out of um, stainless steel and bronze and the cost was quite a lot of money in 1997, something around £17,000 at the time. But once we got out on the road and started raising funds and, and um, shaking cages and doors and all that sort of thing, we did raise quite a bit of money. Um, it shows uh, skulls at the top with the vines of new growth coming up to the bottom. And it was done by uh, sculptor Niall Bruton. Fantastic job. Inside there, there's what's called the skia or the, the lone bush of Irish folklore, which is the hawthorn bush. And quite often, particularly along the sea, uh, it bears the brunt of the, um, of the sea and the wind and the prevailing wind. On the west coast, you can nearly always tell which direction the prevailing wind comes from because the bush leans, leans away from it. So there's a, bon a bronze tree in there, which uh, symbolises, I suppose, the storm uh, and the winds and gales of 1847 and succeeding years when the people survived in one way or another. We lost many, many, half of our population, but the other half survived and somehow the vines of new growth came up. So that's, um, visitors to Sligo would want to go to the famine graveyard and in there you will see the Shka and the gates. Now, um, Fred Conlon was a sculptor of the Shka or the bronze tree. Uh, we had another sculptor, Niall Bruton, who did, some people like uh, figures of sculptures and others like something that's more or less symbolic that you have to read into them. Personally, I prefer the figurative, but that's a, a personal choice, of course. Um, Niall um, sculpted what we call the Famine Family, and that's down by the quayside where the people left, where the ships left. And that uh, sh um, shows uh, a Famine Family, a father and mother, with a child. The father and mother, of course, are bent over with, with worry and hunger. And the child, as children always, they, they're exuberant. And one hand reaches up to the father and mother, and the other uh, hand with the finger points west in, in, in the hope that there's a better life waiting for the father and mother and the young person themselves. When, when they emigrated. So those are the places to go when you come to Sligo. Uh, St. John's Hospital. Joe, we're going to have to wrap up there. It's been fantastic chatting with you, uh, very informative. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you very much.